Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, June 20th, 2008. I'm Alana Rangi. Ori ten Brink has been researching the geophysical properties of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea Basin sits on a massive fault line that is the physical border and deeply political boundary between Israel and Jordan. Ten Brink is a geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and he spoke last week at the American Museum of Natural History. In this week's podcast, hear Ten Brink discuss the challenges of conducting research in the Middle East and get a taste for his research on the region. And while you're listening, check out scienceandthecity.org slash podcast for a multimedia slideshow on the Dead Sea region. Hi, my name is Ori Tenbrink. I'm a research geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And I study tectonics of the Earth. Tectonics is uh, the activity that we see on the surface of the Earth in form of mountain building and opening of valleys and earthquakes and other activities of that sort. It is really my pleasure to be here today and to talk with you about my work in the Middle East together with both Jordanian, Israeli and Palestinian scientists. The work started actually quite modestly with an indirect cooperation that we did in 1988. Of course, because I was born and I grew up in Israel, there's a relationship to the place. And in some ways, I also felt that I owed something to the country that you can say educated me, because as you can imagine, they put a lot of money into my education. And it was a chance for me to go back and visit often and visit the landscapes that I like. But as I started working, it started becoming more and more interesting. Actually, the scientific questions have become very interesting. I felt it became more than just those reasons. The security situation really deteriorated you know, significantly since the start of the sort of Intifada. And we really needed all the help that we could get to carry out the work. We got actually you know, tremendous help from the security you know, apparatus in Jordan. I was a hallmark of a Western society is the emphasis on professionalism and the pride in professionalism. You know, I'm proud in my science, okay? When you go to other societies, and that requires understanding, the values are very different. The pride is not in the professionalism. The pride is in status. The pride is in power. And the way to gain those kind of things requires very often, as I alluded to a little bit, you know, stabbing in the back stepping on each other's shoulders, and any means to achieve that will do. And one of them is you are a collaborator, you are a traitor, you know. You have to understand that that's a reality that people face there. They're good people, and when they come and work with me in the U.S., they all enjoy it very much, and we just talk science and nothing else, and we just have a good time. But when you are there, once you start knowing people well, you understand, you know, they have no choice because that's how the society operates. And that's where, you know, it leads to some despair sometimes because you realize that the actual issues, the professional issues, are not the deciding point. But there is a whole different agenda behind. It's time to talk a little bit about my work, and I'll describe to you some of the project, and I'll try and do it in a way that will 
not complicate things too much. So the first project was a piecemeal sort of, you know, cooperation. And that started from doing a postdoc in Israel in 1988, in which time I started working on some data from Israel. And I realized this is the international border here, that if I want to understand how the Dead Sea was formed and how it develops, I could never do it by looking at data from a very small... The Dead Sea is presently disappearing at a rapid rate. The level of the lake, even though it's called the sea, but it's a lake, it's a closed lake, drops down by about one meter or about, you know, three feet every year. Partly it is explained by the fact that there's less runoff of actually fresh water from the Jordan River and from the surrounding rivers and tributaries because it's a closed basin, you know, it has nowhere else to go. That is because of both more usage of water by people and also because I think the climate becomes more arid. That's a cause of concern, of course, because in about 50 or 100 years there won't be much left of this lake and it has profound effects on the shores. It not only collapses, but you have now those sinkholes that are developing because of that, and that is because of the lowering of the lake level causes fresh water to run through and actually uh, dissolve some salt layers that are underneath the shore, and that causes them, of course, to collapse. You know, The roof of those salt layers collapsed. So people are concerned, and that's why people are talking about perhaps digging a Red Sea, Dead Sea canal to bring some more water to refresh the lake. But I think that our lessons from past attempts to change the world on a large scale, you know, nature is to proceed very, very slowly and carefully. You know, people are not willing to just say, oh, let's just dig the canal and Mm -hmm. fill up the lake and that's it. There may be some unintended consequences that we don't quite know. At the time, of course, there was at least, you know, nominally war between Israel and Jordan, so there was no cooperation. We couldn't really work together. So what we did is we brought from the U.S., from actually, you know, Lamont, we brought a very fancy uh, marine gravimeter and we put it on the only boat that is actually going on the Dead Sea. And you can see it's not a very impressive boat. And we went for three days and three nights and over this lines, as you can see here, and we measured this gravity, and I'll, and I'll explain to you what it is. And at night, we went across the border as well. Then we put together with it also all the data that is in dots that is from the Israeli uh, archive. But I still did not have the data from Jordan. So when I started working at, sort of at the USGS, one of my colleagues there sort of you know, knew people in Jordan. So I asked him to inquire if we can invite somebody. So somebody actually came and brought with him all the data, and we worked together. And we actually, I'm proud to say that we published the first paper ever between Israeli and Jordanian scientists, and this was before actually the, the peace treaty was signed. So what is gravity? Just, uh, just to explain to you very, very simply. So gravity is basically sensitive to variations of density in subsurface rocks. And gravity anomaly, which is what we measure, is the difference between the actual value of the gravity and the value predicted with an Earth model. So for example, this is a uniform density, and you have a higher density rock right here. So over this higher density rock, you have a positive anomaly. If that's, again, that's a uniform you know, rock density and you have a lower rock density right here in the middle, you have a body with it, you see, you see a negative here. Now, those anomalies are not something that you feel. I mean, our measurements can detect one to millionth of the gravitational attraction. So it's not something that we feel when we walk on the Earth, but the instruments do sense it. And that is enough for us to see some of those differences. We found out that the Dead Sea is underlain by a low gravity anomaly, and this is in yellow, but we also found out that it's much, much longer than just 
the lake itself. A rift in the earth is a fissure, a valley or hole or something of that, and often surrounded by areas that are actually higher than usual, which are like the rift shoulders. And I think the term was probably coined for the East African rifts that indeed have this shape. And people, because of East Africa for a long time, realized, and I think rightly so, that the two blocks on either side of the rift are pulling apart from one another. And therefore, you have a fissure in between. The surprising thing, of course, in the Dead Sea is part of the Dead Sea, not all the Dead Sea. In Lebanon, for example, it's not. And in Syria, it's not. But the part that is from the Gulf of Aqaba, from this southern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, all the way to Lebanon, including Israel and Jordan, looks like a rift. And as a result, a lot of people actually argued, oh, it must be a rift, you know. And actually, when I went to schools, I still had some teachers who said, oh, it must be a rift. But it's not the case. The case is that the two plates are actually sliding past one another. The period between, you know, sort of, you know, 1995, when we started this project, and 2000 was, as I call it, the period of, you know, honeymoon. Everybody was, you know, optimistic in the Middle East that there will be cooperation, people will work together. And I had some very funny stories because we met and we met at each other countries. So this one of the stories, this is just to, to remind me, this uh, two people who are, so this guy, is, he's from Jordan and, and, and this guy's from Israel. When they first met, they immediately started speaking Russian with each other. And I was kind of like, oh, what's going on here, you know? Turns out that this guy is from Russia, and he just moved not long before to Israel from St. Petersburg. And this guy did both his sort of undergraduate and his PhD also in St. Petersburg. So they had a lot to talk about, actually. So it was one of the things that really you know, kind of threw me off. There were some other things that, due to, I think, cultural differences, some good and some bad happened. So one of the things, for example, when people came to visit me for the first time, they thought that everybody in my building worked for me because in Jordan, for example, if you are a big boss, if you are an important person, you know, that means that the whole floor works for you. you know? And I tried to tell them, no, I'm just a scientist working alone maybe with an assistant and that's it. And I could see that they couldn't quite believe it. They, they were very disappointed. The general director in Jordan often changed every year you know, and that was very hard to do business. And that was because you only have that many posts in the government and they have to satisfy all the clans and all the minorities and they're not enough posts. So every year there's a shuffling of the government and when each you know, minister changes, they change also their, their you know, director. So that was kind of hard. It took me a while to understand it first. It's like, you know, why won't you call the, the, the guy from the other side, you know? It took a lot of my time sometimes just to draft letters like that. Or they send it to me, I send it to the other side. The other side sends something. So everybody pretends that it all comes from me. You know, even though everybody knows that it's not. But, you know, everybody has to play that game. The USAID people who funded me in the last project, they say, wait a minute, you are too involved in the project. You should take yourself off. It was not even a matter of actually money. They said, you should take yourself off. It should be between them. I said, you guys, you know, you are the USAID. You don't know what you're talking about. On paper, they want to show how they do a Middle Eastern cooperation. In practice, they should be a person who is go-between so that, especially in the Arab world, everybody can always say, we do not cooperate with Israel, we cooperate with the Americans. We decided to do two things. One is we decided to do a magnetic survey over the Arva Valley, north of Elat and Aqaba. And the other one is actually take those big trucks from Israel and cross the border to Jordan and run some seismic profiles, and I'll show you what it is, 
across some of the faults that we have discovered previously. And what it is, is there is a truck that is vibrating or putting a lot of you know, thumps on the ground, and that creates sound waves, and the sound waves go and they reflect from layers, and then the reflection comes back to the surface where they're recorded by those geophones. We call them geophones. And after processing, what we can get is a cross-section of the subsurface, and we can start making interpretation, for example, that those are full. Unfortunately, a month after we got the money, the, the second sort of intifada started, and a year later, the 9-11 also happened, and that threw off everything. So first of all, we couldn't meet face-to-face in either Israel, Jordan, or the Palestinian territories at all. We had to go outside of those countries. So this is in, in Italy here. And you can see we're still all meeting here. But when we first met, so the Palestinians, you know, complained about, I mean, all the frequent roadblocks. And this guy here said that two of his cousins were killed by Israelis. And then later on, this guy pulled me from Israel and said, but there were suicide bombers. I tried running this whole thing, not to talk about politics, but to talk about what we want to move on and, and what we want to achieve. And we did achieve finally, but it took us, first of all, about you know, three years to do our first project. And that first project was airborne survey. And we decided since we cannot cross a border and it's, there are a lot of uh, uh, you know, security problems, we'll work down south here, which is much safer. So we got the, the Jordanian Air Force to fly the aeromagnetic survey and the Canadian company to help us out. And as you can see, uh, here we're all sitting together, and this is a Jordanian pilot you know, flying over a, a, a kibbutz here. And the idea was to go back and forth many, many times, actually you know, three times as many as you can see in these lines, across the international border, which is right here, in order to do the map. It's basically all it is is a magnetometer, kind of in a bottle that has some plasma or something like that. Very sensitive, that, that's the point. So the helicopter is made of metal, and you tow it far enough away so it will not be affected by the metal of the helicopter because the helicopter is moving. So it's hanging from the helicopter as the helicopter flies, you know. It's kind of interesting. I have some pictures of how they take off with it and how they land with it. So it takes a magnetic reading. It's like any magnetometer. It takes a value every second or something like that, or every half a second. And then we have a GPS, so we know exactly where we are. And then since the magnetic field of the Earth changes all the time, you have to have a magnetic station on land somewhere sitting then not moving throughout the entire time so you can see the fluctuation and you just you know subtract the fluctuation of that magnetic station that is stationary from whatever you see in the flight that's all you do you know those methods are not complicated what was really surprising is that we could see the fault i this is you know sort of serendipity when i thought about the experiment i thought oh we'll see some you know maybe magmatic bodies maybe we'll prove or not prove whether there's volcanism really indeed in the rift valley or maybe we'll be really lucky enough and see that it was not just one fault, but several faults, and they were moving because there's one block here, magmatic block, and another one shifted a little bit, and another one shifted a little bit. I never expected to actually see the fault itself. We wanted to do the second part of the cross-border work, where we would take an Israeli crew and move to Jordan and do the work, but we could never get permission. And time went on. It was like 2004. We didn't know what to do. So it was out. So we decided to do something else, and that to send sound and not people across the border. And the idea would be to have an explosion on one side of the border and put the seismometers on the other side of the border and listen from one side to the other and just coordinate it, you know, together. And that's what we did. I found it a minor miracle that actually everything worked because, as you can imagine, we got these instruments. The guy at the University of, of El Paso has many of them. So, so he helped me out. I know him, so I called him. Oh, you know, can we... So he said, I have a gap of, I don't know, a few weeks only between two experiments. 
And I said, but this is during Ramadan. I said, so he said, well, that's the only gap I have. Says, I have to live with it. I called the Jordanian guy, I said, can we do it? He says, we'll do it. So they sent it to Jordan. Of course, it got stuck in customs, as usual. And until this guy from security did not help us, you know, and, and during Ramadan, nobody helps. And, and nobody works, basically, you know. It's, it's really hard to work. So we had eight teams of about two or three people, and we had to do it all in two days. There were few that did not work out the way I wanted to, but for the majority, they worked as I expected. So, you know, that's why I'm saying it's almost a minor miracle. I you know I had expected that. I wasn't sure that the whole experiment would actually work. Then we had to time out all the shots, and you can imagine all the explosions from different parts of the border that they will be timed so that there won't be two explosions at the same time, for example, and that the explosions will be only during the time that the instruments recorded. They didn't have much recording time. so. I had the benefit of one of the guys that operate those seismometers. They already had an established procedure, so we did that, you know. So it all worked, and we did it like in, we deployed in two days. We shot in two days. We collected in one and a half days, and we sent it back. And, you know, when it all ended, I said, wow. It was like, you know, it was amazing, you know. Uh, we had to to deal here with livestock and with some animals, including some jackals that, that actually stole some of our seismometers and took them away. One of them they took into this a This was mine. really fantastic. We go in a closed military zone, and this was actually an area I was working in, and we come back to actually collect those seismometers. And suddenly we start seeing, we don't find one. We don't find the second one. We don't find the third one. This is what's going on here. And some of them were actually, there were some posts with soldiers almost overlooking that. So we said, what's going on? Is there somebody sabotaging, you know? And the security people were really, really worried too, you know? So then they brought a tracker and the tracker started looking and then they started walking around and they found some of them in bushes and stuff. And then they realized it was, it was a jackals. And it turns out that those, you know, seismometers had this orange plastic between the actual listening device, the phone itself, and the recorder, and they apparently liked to chew on it. So they would dig it, you know, because we buried it, too. But somehow, you know, either they were watching us or something, they started digging them, and they pulled them, you know, and they took them a while, and we found them, you know, half-chewed, you know, just a cable, and then they would just leave them. <laughs> so the tracker found everything. He basically tracked everything, except for the one where he tracked into, into a minefield. And, and he said, well, do you want me to go and get it? No, 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 I don't want it on my, on my consciousness, you know. <laughs> Leave it alone there. <laughs> and what we found out, for example, is that under the basin, that the basin itself is filled with about six and a half kilometers of actual sediments, about four miles of sediments. But the sound speed continues to be low all the way down to about 18 kilometer deep, which was quite a surprise here. So there are sediments or, or sedimentary rocks that are near the surface around the Dead Sea that are now down deep to about 10 kilometers or so. And below that, there's a thin part of the same crust that we see here. What is really surprising is in the lower crust, nothing is really happening. I will not talk too much about what it means, except to say that this was quite a surprising result for people who study rifts, because usually what you expect to see is something coming up from here or, uh, or some other you know, modification farther down. We also did something called 3D tomography, which is CAT scan of the Earth, if you can imagine that. So we looked at all the shots, all the sort of explosion, all the sound sources, and all the receivers, and we put them together, tried to invert them. 
And you can see that the lake itself, that's the extent of the lake, but the Dead Sea Basin, as was shown in the gravity before, if you remember, but this is a much more direct way of actually mapping, is much, much longer. It's about 150 kilometers long. It goes down to about 7 kilometers or, or 4.5 miles or so. And those sediments and those sedimentary rocks that are on the outside go down to about 10 kilometers. And in those sedimentary rocks, people think that this is an oil source. I don't know if you know that the Dead Sea is called Mare Asphaltis, because in ancient times, there were, I mean, even, even the Romans, you know, knew that there were blocks of asphalt after storms that, that would float, I mean, on the Dead Sea itself. So people think that there is a source of oil there, although they haven't discovered one. So you can see that the results here were that the basin deepens, you know, gradually along axes, both from north and south, but more gradually from the south and reaches about 7 kilometers, and the older oil-bearing sediments reach about 10 kilometers. So finally, we come to the last one, where there's unsupervised play and uh, there's direct cooperation, which is great. And that happened last year. Money given by an Israeli-American you know, philanthropist, who is also a geophysicist, through money that was given by him, he funded mapping in detail the bathymetry of the Dead Sea, or the topography underwater of the Dead Sea. And that's the only boat that is now, actually, is on the Dead Sea. And you see the Israeli and the Jordanian flag. And all I had to do there is just put the initial, uh, you know, contact between the people, and then they continue to work themselves. Uh, every morning, a Jordanian officer, a liaison officer, and also some scientists will be met with a little, you know, zodiac and the boat, and get on the boat and do the work, the day work, and then come back there. So they didn't have to cross the international border officially to do that. So that work is ongoing and I hope there will be more of such work so you know that we don't have to be involved from this side here but the Jordanians and Israelis can work together. So cooperation really makes a difference for peace. It contributes to water exploration, earthquake hazard, infrastructure projects and basic science in a way that each country alone could not accomplish. Also trust between individuals and also foundation for actually future interactions are being established so people continue to actually work. And then scientific and technical knowledge is advanced through training and joint work. A wider circle of people, which is really important, becomes accustomed to the possibility of international cooperation. And this is sometimes soldiers, drivers, technicians, you know, a lot of other people, when they start seeing people from the other side coming, people start, and at first we always have this sense of suspicion, and then people realize, well, you know, that's the way it is. Also, the success of cooperative projects build hope for a better future in areas all too often beset by destruction and violence. And if any of you ever want to do some international cooperation like that, I would advise you know, several points here. One is to plan an incremental approach to achieving your goals. You can never achieve it all at once, and you have to be very flexible with your goals and your timetable. You know, sometimes you have to wait years, sometimes you can do it right away. You have to respect foreign colleagues, their culture, and the way they do business. The other point, which I think we all too often don't recognize, even when we look at politics in other countries, you have to recognize that the reality of sort of internal politics. Very often we think that when somebody tells us something, it's because they don't want to do it, because they don't trust, things like that. Very often you find out later on there are internal politics. They have to watch for their back. They have to pay attention. They cannot do certain things that they would like to do. You have to be very open and honest about your goals, and I try to do it all the time because people are suspicious to start with. You know, I mean, the mode of operation is you know, suspicious, so you always have to be totally open about it so people lose their suspicion and start trusting. You have to provide training and equipment so people see that they get something out of it. You know? It's not like they give their land and somebody comes out there and does whatever they want and then go away. 
And you have to explain your work, and it's important to support and, and to security staff, to, to bureaucrats, and to the public. And, you know, and that's quite important. So wherever we were, we tried to explain why we're doing it so people will feel that they're part of the science. And I guess I'm trying to do that too. listening. We'd love to hear what you thought of this week's podcast and other Science in the City podcasts. Email your feedback to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Leave a voicemail at 212-298-8654 or send your comments snail mail care of Science in the City, 7 World Trade Center, 250 Greenwich Street, 40th Floor, New York, New York, 10007. For more information on science and culture in New York City, log on to scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.